Hello and welcome to Zookeeping 101. This is the Zookeeper podcast where we take you behind the scenes talking to professionals in the industry about their stories, words of wisdom and journey so far to get to where they are today, really showing you what it takes to be a zookeeper. All views throughout the podcast shared are of those speaking alone and in no way reflect the collections they work for. So please come along for the journey, enjoy the ride and thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to Zookeeping 101. My name's James Dennis. I am your presenter. And today we're talking all about the various taxonomic groups within this industry and the ones we work in. And I couldn't think of anyone better to talk to than Maisie. Welcome, Maisie Burley, to the show. Hello. Uh, great to have you on. Now, if you want to introduce to all our lovely listeners exactly who you are, where you come from and what title you hold. Hi, I'm Maisie Burley. I am a keeper on the Predators team at Whipsnade Zoo. I'm not from Whipsnade Zoo area. I'm from the Midlands, but I've ended up at Whipsnade. And yeah, a little bit about Whipsnade. It's a very new, unique zoo, part of ZSL. And we are the UK's largest zoo. We are a 600 acre site and we've got a lot of history within us. So I found out recently, it's two of our ponds on our site are actually created by bombs that were dropped during the Second World War. The one, if you go through Passage Through Asia, which is like the drive through, the crater of the pond was formed um, from a bomb dropping. So yeah, it's kind of cool history. I love it. If you've been up on the downs, you'll see it's got a beautiful view. Up until recently, I thought it was the best view from a zoo in the UK, but the one at Highland Wildlife Park is actually nicer. But on a clear day, you can see four counties from the top of viewpoint, which is quite stunning, really. And yeah, ZSL are a pretty good organisation to work for. They do loads of work around the world. And Whipsnode are very famous, kind of, the work they've done as well. So we were the first Western Zoo to pair up a cheetah, which is quite a cool thing, really. And yeah, if you've ever been to Whipsnode, you can get all four seasons in one day. It can be blazing sunshine, blowing a hoolie, raining sideways and snowing as well. So yeah, I absolutely love Whipsnode. Wow. To jump on that, how, how does it feel to work at somewhere so historic with such a... Uh, a historical reputation behind it. I absolutely love it. I'm a bit of a history nerd myself. I love that Whipsnade is kind of so old. <laughs> I love that Zedicel as a whole is quite old. I loved history at school. And it's just really nice. We get a lot of members who like came when they were little kids and now they're taking their grandchildren there. And I love talking to them and they always tell me, oh, I remember when this was the wolves or when this was that. And you're like, wow, yeah, amazing. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I've got a lot of history. I think it's really nice to touch upon as well. We've got loads of like science around the zoo that tell you about it. So the old elephant house, which obviously at the time was kind of pioneering. Obviously, we know now it's not suitable for elephant, but you know it's there. It's a grade grade listed structure, so we can't really demolish it. But what we can do is teach people about it and. It's a nice bit of history, a bit of art as well. Amazing, amazing. Now, obviously, as you've said, you, you've you had to move quite literally geographically, but also through positions, through collections. Everyone has a path. Everyone has those keystone moments, those stepping stones, and those stories to be told about how they've got to where they are today. Do you have them, Maisie? Do, do you have that key moment or key route towards where you are today? I certainly do. Though I grew up when I was younger watching Animal Park, based at Longley, which I'm sure... A lot of us did. Um, she used to watch it with my dad in the morning before we went to school. And he used to be like, I want to be a zookeeper. And that's what I wanted to do. Um, and then I remember in year nine, my teacher was telling us like we had to pick jobs we want to go into. And I was like, I want to be a zookeeper. And she was like, that's not a real job. Pick a real job. And so there's this like massive book called The Job Book. I remember it distinctly because I went to like the last page to find zookeeper. 
Um, and I was like, okay, I'll be a vet. So I did my A-levels. Turns out I'm not very good at chemistry, so veterinary went out the window. And during that time in my life, I had quite a lot of personal stuff going on that kind of changed my direction of life. So I didn't want to go to uni straight away. So I went to college instead. I went to Derby College um, and studied level three animal management. And then I went to uni at Chester to do animal behaviour and welfare. And I really enjoyed it because I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was like, I don't want to do vets. I want to do animals, but I don't know what I want to do. Clear enough, I actually ended up living with a load of students who were on their second year of zoo management and they kind of steered me back to the zoo world. So we used to go on our weekends out. We used to go trips to other zoos and just see other people. And, and that's how I kind of ended up, yeah, I want to be a zookeeper. So I was in my first year of uni, second year of uni, I can't remember, but every single work placement was in a zoo with animals or working at Reese's College on my weekends. And yeah, that's kind of how I ended up kind of going into the zoo world. So I did work experience at a few different zoos like taking every single holiday that I had to go and do work experience. I was one of those little zoo nerds. And I did a Twilight internship at Chester Zoo as well. So that was kind of my first foot in the door. Um, and I was like, yeah, I want to I want to do this. And at that point, I didn't know what I wanted to work with. I thought, I want to work with big cats, but it's very hard to go straight into working with big cats. So I kind of just did anything and everything. So hoofstock, bird, reptiles, amphibians, you name it, I was trying to look after it. Apart from elephants, I haven't done elephants. All great apes. So yeah, and then after I finished uni, I was lucky enough to get given a place on the internship again at Chester on carnivores. So I was there for just under a year. Um, I left just before the end. And I worked with obviously big cats, bears, and kind of learnt loads of different things, able to put things into practice, kind of observe the keepers that I was working with and learnt loads. And then eventually managed to get a job at Little Zoo Ventura Wildlife, which has now kind of moved moved on. And from there kind of moved around to other places and eventually ended up at Whipstone, which is kind of where's always wanted to be so I got there in the end <laughs> um, and now I specialise in carnival so that's really nice. You've alluded to it just there but do you want to tell everyone officially then what taxa you would associate your keeping role with what sort you know at, at, in your heart where does your heart lie with your taxonomic group and for anyone listening why should they consider working with that taxa? I've just always been drawn towards carnivores, large carnivores with cats, bears and dogs and funnily enough I'm not a big fan of domestic cats like small cats in my house no big cats absolutely I love them but I wasn't really sure on bears so when I first got my first internship through from Chester so they don't really tell you when you go for the interview what you're interviewing for they just say what do you like working with and you just tell them and they'll give you whatever they think suits you so I got twilight and the the package said twilight and bears and I was like oh I don't know what this is turns out to be probably one of the most amazing sections I've ever worked on such a big diverse range of small mammals and then the Andean bears were on there and I kind of fell in love with bears and from that point on I was like I love bears so I was very lucky to work with Lucy Edwards who's I think she's been a guest on the podcast before and she kind of taught me well a lot of the things I know about bears she's very influential in my kind of zookeeping career so kind of ended up where I have um I just think they're one of the best species they're quite fun they're very interactive with you it's nice to be able to challenge the animals and get them working working hard and especially bears bears are really intelligent they're just like giant dogs so I look at my dog and I can kind of tell what she's thinking I feel very similar with bears but they are very cheeky but yeah I just think they're so intelligent they're so fun to work with there's so much more we can learn about them which kind of makes them an amazing kind of species and taxa to work with totally uh, a very very good choice and yeah I couldn't agree more on the bear front very good choice and for anyone who you won't be seeing this on the podcast obviously but on your wall Maisie I can spot all those bears up there strapped up um but uh no so, so obviously with this taxa with these animals 
what would you say with regards to enrichment? You know, it's it's one of the keeper's favourite things to do within the role is to create enrichment for our animals, to see them stimulated, see them doing what they're meant to do. With regards to your taxa, whether you want to dial it down to one specific species within that or whatever it may be, do you have any any quirky enrichment, any quirky idea that you've come up with or you've come across that really just hits home to that specific taxa slash species? Yeah, so one that sticks with me quite a lot is some of the stuff we do for our big cats. So when I started at Witchnade, obviously we feed out loads of different things to our animals. We've got horse bits and kind of chickens, rabbits, but we also are able to manage our own deer population. With that, we don't waste any part of the deer. I think the only thing we actually get rid of is the intestines and the stomach because nothing really wants to eat it. Um, but there's been occasions where we basically, basically skin the deer and kept the head on. And this is what one of the other keepers did and... I remember watching it and being like, that is amazing. Also quite disgusting. What I managed to do was kind of hang it over a, a big barrel, big plastic barrel, and kind of secure it in a way so the hide wasn't going to come off and hang it up in the paddock, let the lines go and have a great time with it. So it was quite interesting to see. They kind of go over to it. Obviously, they kind of jump at it. They bat it around. It kind of fights back because it sometimes hits them in the face if they're not looking. And they get that enrichment of they get the fur, any meat that's left on it, and then the head as well will keep them busy for ages. And also then trying to get it down if you tied it up really well it will take them a long time it'll keep them busy and you know we can't feed out live prey that's illegal so it's not very really nice so if we can stimulate kind of any sort of natural behavior that way we can which i really enjoy and um, we're very lucky to have these special bungees that we use to feed our big cats as well so they're kind of tiger and lion bear proof which makes them great um, and it's a novel way of kind of getting the animals to work for their food and kind of stimulate kind of replicate the hunt kind of way and um, so they go out they go up, get the food from the bungee, pull it down, and then most of the time the bone stays up there. And then they kind of look at you like, oh my God, I can't believe I have to do this. And then they have to go up and down multiple times. And it just means they're kind of working nice and hard for their food, for the enrichment. Yeah, it's one of my favourite things for big cats. And I know research has shown that if you kind of feed your big cats in that way and give them stimulating things, it's actually really good for their bones. And they kind of develop arthritis later on in life than they normally would in captivity. So we want, as well as the bungee feeds, is feeding them up the feed poles. So... We've got kind of uprights in our paddocks where we can have a ladder, pop our food, and have either right at the top or we kind of tie it near the top of the pole. Oh, that encourages your cats to climb up and down the pole as and when. And I, I quite like it because it's something that, you know, research has shown that if you pole feed your cats, they're healthier for longer. Climbing up and down the feed pole, it's not something you make them do straight away. You don't go, right, climb to the top because when they land, they're going to hurt themselves. So you kind of have to train your big cats to do it. They've not done it before, you just do it maybe at head height, a little bit further next time. You just kind of vary it. So going up and down, they kind of build the strength. And when they land, it is kind of a trauma on their bones and their joints, but a very kind of good trauma, if that makes sense. So it kind of builds up over time, get them kind of stronger. So you'll notice with a tiger especially, all their power, all their strength is in the top half of their body. Yeah, and definitely seeing a tiger, which can easily get 200 kilos, just fly up a feed pole like it's anything and I struggle to climb the stairs yeah it's a pretty pretty cool sight to see and yeah the research has shown it's good for your big cats if you can do it but this is something that was kind of the innovative was pretty much Graham Law who was a zookeeper and turned academic and lecturer uh, from Glasgow Uni unfortunately he has passed away now a couple of years ago but he's very influential in the zoo world he kind of coined a lot of weird and wonderful enrichment items and kind of ways to look after your animals which has actually shown his kind of work has kind of lasted the years and keeps your animals kind of stronger so another one he invented was um, like a feed kind of cage if you've got like a small cat um like climbs um 
you can do a pop hole on the top of your enclosure if it's got a roof on it. And within that pop hole, there's like a little bit of food in the box. And then you kind of make it in a way that it's a little bit harder for the animal to get. So they have to climb up there and kind of funnel around to try and find their food or enrichment item, whatever it is. And in doing that, they're obviously using all the muscles they should be doing. And it's like a little bit different, a bit problem solving. So yeah, just want to mention Graham Law. Great guy. I was very lucky in my time as an intern at Chester. He actually came down and did a couple of talks and spent a couple of days with us on carnivals. So very influential man. And if you haven't heard about him, Google him and find out all the work he's done. He's written a few books. Great words. And I think uh, there'll be a few note taking there and and eagerly probably wanting to, to find that sort of stuff as well. So with, with that, obviously enrichment's one thing, but enclosure design is a whole different realm. You know, if you design our enclosures well enough, that's enrichment in itself. And that creates a, a good life for the animal, but just as importantly, a good life for the keeper. With, with our enclosures, once again, is there anything with your taxa, with those bears, with those big cats, with those carnivores that particularly is needed for the, the husbandry, for the care, for the general, you know, we're talking a simple drain on the floor, which goes downhill all the way through to actually drilling home to that taxa what have you got for us Maisie um so at the top of my list that I wrote down I did actually write put the drain at the lowest point because that is every single zookeeper's bugbear but in terms of enclosure design you really need to look at the species you're looking after like what do they need make it suitable for them like there's no point putting like an aardvark in a paddock where they can't dig pointless make sure they can dig and do those natural behaviors so especially things like just topography like giving animals like lookout points so cheetahs for example they like to sit on rocks up in trees and look out across like you know the horizon so we recently had some stuff done to our cheetah paddock which means they have more places now where they can sit up high and we tend to find them most mornings just sit up high kind of looking out um at the deer and the zebra and stuff so kind of just looking at your animal and what do they need what don't they need so um we had it especially with our hunting dogs as well so one of our keepers did quite a lot of work to kind of redo one of our paddocks in the in the dogs so they've got like hills they have to climb up now and tunnels and spaces they can dig and because digging is a big thing for hunting dogs you know they dig it in so if we can kind of stimulate any of that natural behavior we can even like ease of use make something simple like that is just makes life so much easier if your slide's in the right place nothing worse if you're trying to get animals to come through a slide but it's like really far away and they can't see it and you're like please just move over just little bits and bobs like that and looking at keep keeper safety as well so you've got your airlock gates to make sure you know should anything happen even if it's like a meerkat or something if it gets into your keeper area it's not getting out things have changed dramatically over the course of zoos in, in general so if you think about Whipsnake, it's a very historical zoo there's a lot of old stuff going on there it was 1931 it opened so it's been going a while and if you have been you'll see the brown bear paddock so the main kind of paddock area is pretty much unchanged from the day it was built that's not a bad thing necessarily we've done things to fix it like the pond was leaking so fixing that but within that paddock we've got hawthorn trees brambles logs boulders and we've added bits and bobs in like enrichment feeders and zip lines but all in all if you look at that paddock for a brown bear it's actually really nice they've got loads of places they can hide most time people go where are the bears and you're like they're in there they're like can't see it and you're like well there are four there's just you know they're brown they blend in but you'll see them later in the year when the berries come out on the hawthorn they're just happily eating the hawthorn berries so doing the natural behavior on the bramble so bramble probably whatever keepers nightmare hate it scratches you it's painful <laughs> Grows everywhere. However, we do leave quite a lot of it in because, again, the berries, they're really good for the bears. They enjoy them. It's kind of a natural way of giving them fruit as well. And also clover that grows in there. They'll eat that to kind of get their grass and kind of that kind of intake. So, yeah, just it's looking at species specifically, really. And there's a lot of research that's gone into it now that you know, we can do better. So now we're obviously talking about all different taxes and with them come their own challenges, their own difficulties. Now, 
obviously your taxa comes with quite a lot of risk. You know, you've got your animals, which they eat meat. They are, they've got that primal element still inside them, even though they are captive. And with a keeping side, you've got to have, and you'll, you'll be able to tell me firsthand, Maisie, you've got to have a thrill seeker side inside yourself, surely, to do this role. You know, you, you're dealing with animals which you get a, a padlock wrong, you get a, a slider wrong, stuff can happen, you know, and it is it could be life-changing for you, let alone the animal. So with regards to carnivores as a whole, how does that develop you as a keeper? How does that allow you to evolve and and basically avoid anything going wrong? I wouldn't call it thrill-seeking too much, but yes, there is danger involved, you know, to be hard-working working with, you know, the big stuff that can kill you. You just have to be very aware of what you're doing. So we work in a buddy keeper system at Whipsnade, so there's always two of us, so one does the locks, next person will check. If you're ever unsure, you'd rather shout and, you know, it'll be fine then pretend it's fine it's not fine so yeah i do tend to say if i think about it too much my job is terrifying as you say do something wrong and that's it but i really just enjoy working with the big cats it's nice to be able to challenge them but with carnivore keeping from being someone who's kind of worked with everything like domestics who stock bird primates whatever i do sometimes miss being able to like pet things <laughs> selfishly um so we're very lucky at which they actually have our box and our section who don't necessarily mind a tickle every now and then so yeah i think that's something to be mindful of you don't have the tactile with the carnivores unless you're doing any training so yeah i think that's kind of one part of it that kind of makes me miss being a hoofer um but yeah it can be scary during covid at my old zoo we all kind of stayed on our own section so i looked after the bears and the quarties predominantly and i missed the tapirs so much i missed being able to like give something a little pat a little rub on the head and the goats and stuff so yeah um it can be like emotionally draining mentally draining and um, being a hard keeper but i love it now this whole episode is about taxonomic groups you know you've got your birds you've got your fish you've got your mammals you've got you know a whole bundle of different species different taxes and different worlds now the keepers generally at some point in their careers will levitate towards one or the other as you say it's good to keep your mind open and get a little sample of each one to see where you truly live and, and want to work but with it each keeper will build up its own skill set you know whether it be the filtration with fish whether it be you know knowing how to sweep properly with your hoof stock um it's all essential skills with your taxa with with those large carnivores with those bears with those you know big cats how would you define your specific keeping role and how does it differ in your experience to other taxonomic groups? As a carnivore keeper, you're not very squeamish anymore. You've seen it all. Some people will say it's not as physically demanding as, say, like, rani keeping, hoofstock keeping, but I've done both. So, yeah, like, oh, it's not as hard work. It is quite mentally draining because you've obviously got a lot of safety aspects involved with it. Uh, when, I, when I started and we were hanging up, deer heads for the bears and one of the keepers I was working with just put the rope like straight down the gullet of the of the of the deer head I was like yeah okay yeah right <laughs> and you just become like oblivious to it and um, but yeah you can spot us coming from a mile off we've probably got something down our leg or whatever and um, usually blood a little bit on the arm not our own um <laughs> and yeah if you've kind of started trodden a tiger poo you, you smell it yeah 
<laughs> we're a good bunch though <laughs> obviously looking back at your journey you know you talked about about where you've been where you come from and so on do you have any advice maybe for your younger self or or even for someone listening in now from you know the journey you've been on the taxes you've worked with do you have anything little gems that you picked up along the way definitely say networking's big one and um, so I joined ABWAC when I was a student went to symposiums and it was terrifying because I didn't know anyone I was just a student everyone else was a zookeeper but that's just kind of how you meet people I became friends with loads of people there that are still in my life today some of my best friends so yes I would definitely say networking don't give up take all the opportunities and work with everything I've worked with some work experience in the past who are just happy to be there. They're like, I'll work with anything. Um, and some are like, I only work, want to work with elephants. And you're like, well, that's lovely. You'll probably end up there. But if you can work with other things, it means you've got a broader taxonomic knowledge and kind of you can apply yourself to different situations. So you might have worked with like one species of bird that might kind of go along with another species. And the same with kind of everything, really. It's just kind of building up your skill set. Don't kind of pinpoint yourself too soon, I'd say. So... Even though I knew I wanted to work with big cats, I've worked with everything, as I said, apart from the great apes and the elephants. Um, and I've really enjoyed every single part of it. I'm happy to take away any experience I can. Another thing would be is to keep healthy, which might sound silly. Make sure you stretch, do some yoga, keep your fitness up. It's a very demanding job and you kind of forget that you're constantly on your feet. Like my legs are really tight, so I have to make sure I'm stretching all the time. And it means your body's going to last a bit longer. As we all know, it's a very taxing job on your body when you need to look, need to look after it if you want to be doing it for many years to come you need to be able to look after yourself because a lot of people leave the profession because their body breaks not because they do because their body just can't do it anymore so look after yourself would be a big one really really good tips there and i think you're exactly right you do need to look after each other the amount of keepers that we've both come across with bad backs or bad knees as a clear one too let alone all the other ailments is uh is huge um but yeah other than that, organisations, Abwak is there and so on. So, yeah, take on board everything Maisie's saying because it's all very, very vital. Um, now, this leads us to the big questions. It's a part of this podcast episode where we try and tackle some of the, the larger topics in the industry and try and come to the bottom of them. So we'll start off with quite a, a simple question, but with such a large thing around it, and that is zookeepers. Zoos as a whole, but zookeepers... Back in the day, a long time ago now, it feels, we were considered one role, and that was a poo picker, the stereotypical term in the modern day. And yet, if you look at us, you know, we're educationists, we're welfare officers, we're, you know, there's so much to our roles, it's very hard to just say one thing. With all of that put together, what do you feel is the current largest challenge for being a zookeeper and, and how do you overcome it if you can? I think one of the biggest challenges apart from your health and your own well-being is the public especially in the times now we have like social media and things go viral just at like the click of the fingers really you get a lot of just say questionable videos coming up with a lot of people like hugging tigers and lions and personally I don't agree with that it's not something we advocate for in the UK like a lot of people sometimes who come to our meet and greet so I've had in the past throughout my career going oh it's really cool I went to Tiger Temple and cuddled a tiger and you're like yeah that's not actually the best thing you should be doing and you just have to take it as like a learning opportunity I'm never one to discount someone's experience obviously they had a good time doing it but obviously once they've kind of grown up and years have gone by they've kind of realized it's not the right thing to do and um, yeah definitely public perception is a big one we get a lot of questions about things and we've got a tiger who's 
on his own. Tiger's a solitary. He did live with his brothers. And a lot of people go, oh, is he is he sad on his own? He's always asleep at the moment. We look after animals. We make sure they're kind of as healthy as can be and we give them enrichment and stimulate them and, you know, they contribute towards a lot of conservation work without even knowing it. We used to take pictures of our tiger cubs as they were growing up and sent them off to conservation partners we worked with and they were able to use those pictures to kind of estimate how old the tigers are and camera traps that they're seeing. So it's all about educating the public and kind of trying to change their perception a little bit. One of the best memories I have is I did a draft talk at my old zoo and this guy came up to me, mid-20s, and after the talk, he was like, this is amazing. I've never seen a giraffe in the, in the flesh before. And it was a lovely opportunity just to talk about giraffes and, you know, educate people because that's kind of, that's how we're going to save animals for future generations. Especially with little kids, they always come up to you and like, my favourite animal's a penguin. You're like, wow, amazing. Try and tap into that excitement and enthusiasm they have. So that's probably one of the largest challenges, especially with something negative pops up on social media, which it does, trying to kind of deal with that and the questions and steer it back into a positive mindset because throughout the world there are there are bad zoos but there are also really good zoos so unfortunately a lot of good zoos are tarnished with the bad brush from seeing something on social media they may not want to see totally that's number one smashed out the park we'll move on to number two and that is you know from day one uh from being a trainee keeper a volunteer you name it we're all told by our bosses by our superiors you need to look after yourself like you're saying it's so essential but creating that good balance between a home life and a work life, it is needed to, to create a good balance between everything. So with regards to this as a topic, do you feel it's an easy one to achieve? Is it achievable at all? And how do we achieve it? I think it is achievable somewhat. I don't think you can 100% separate yourself from the zoo world when you're off. So you're always see an animal and I'm like oh that's a nice one or oh let's go to this thing but in terms of like work life I do try and have a work-life balance so on my days off I tend to check my emails ignore the group chat and yeah try not to talk about work things really but it is hard and especially if you say one of your animals that you've worked with for many years passes away you do take that home with you it is sad you see these animals more than you see your own pets sometimes so it is hard um, but the best thing you can do is kind of try and build boundaries. And if you are struggling, just speak to someone on your team, speak to a friend and, you know, a problem shared is a problem. Solved. So that's the best way to kind of look at it. Um, but I am guilty for taking work home with me. Um, I do my best not to, you know, and I think it's kind of worked a lot better for me because I know in the past you kind of get caught up in it. And especially during COVID, I think all of us in the same boat. The only thing we did do was go to work. So although it was lovely to have that routine and be able to go out of the house and, you know, my boyfriend was at home just doing nothing he was bored out of his mind and I was able to go and do my job but it was still a lot you need that break sometimes so take your days off if you want to book holiday you book holiday you don't have to say yes all the time if they want you for overtime totally some really really good words and I say we'll move on to the next one we, we've already alluded to this a little bit but with zoos across the country obviously education is key it's the only way we're going to get our messages across to to the globe let alone to just our paying guests and so on so with regards to inspiring educating as a collective you know we've got so many zoos here in the uk alone to do that exact role do you feel that we are already doing enough or do we need to evolve and, and work harder on this I think we could do more, to be honest. I mean, a lot of zoos now do a lot of outreach programmes, going to schools and colleges and, you know, where I used to work, we used to do a homeschoolers um, session. So people who are homeschooled would come in and see the animals and kind of get up close and personal with them. But yeah, I do think there's more we can be doing. It seems to be with zoos in the UK, 
we only really hit the headlines when something bad happens. And that's not what we want to see. We want to shout about all the good work we do. So working for Zeller Cell is really nice. We've got loads of kind of conservation work we do all across the world. We've got the Institute of Zoology. and We do loads of research with that. I mean, not me personally, um, but all the lovely scientists do. And, you know, they released a paper recently that just said, basically, if the temperature goes up by just a few degrees where African hunting dogs live, that's it, they're gone. They cannot survive. But people don't know this. So, yeah, there is more we can be doing. I think the effect of Blue Planet 2 came out during COVID and then suddenly everyone's like, oh, my God, everything's dying. And we're like, yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I think there's more we can do, and especially now people are more aware of it. It's something we could be doing. I did actually notice that the giraffe workshop that was just held last weekend, just gone, at Bristol Zoo Project, actually made it into BBC News, which was amazing. That's, you know, it's nice that stuff like that that we are doing as zoos is kind of publicised and shouted about because it is important. A lot of our social media is just kind of funny stuff and we need to bring the, you know, the people in with that. So always sticks in my head years ago, Yorkshire Wildlife Park did a post about the polar bears like one of them was wearing a cone as a hat or like hugging his cone and they just made like a funny little tagline to go along with it and it got quite a lot of kind of views and follows and comments and you need that stuff to bring in people for the more important stuff there's more we can be doing and I know BRs do quite a lot of work with the government and with all of us around the UK to kind of shout our kind of plight it can be better but we are still doing quite a lot yeah totally and i think like that like you just said biaza i'm pretty sure just on the news only a few weeks ago actually fighting the corner for whether zoo should even be a thing and i believe they conquered that chat where they left everyone else baffled because of the amount of facts and stats about how good zoos are uh, and, and the actual good work we do and i think that's the, like you say there's more we can do it's just about shouting about the good we're already doing we don't need to make anything up because we're already achieving this tenfold yeah and just to add on to that i just thought when covid happened obviously zoos we rely on our income to feed our animals that is how it is basically and we were all struggling during covid because the government didn't recognize that we were struggling so much and obviously we were as our own zoos i was at a smaller collection during covid and we also were putting on our social media, we're struggling, turn on wants to buy a ticket in advance and then cash it in another day. Please do. But I don't think it was until I think Chester Zoo put a post up like, we're all gonna go under. We need help. And at that point, people actually listened and were like, Oh my god, we need to help them <laughs> which is lovely. But it kind of felt a bit sad that it got to the point where we had to kind of, you know, hope someone else would do it. Like we're all doing it ourselves, but because Chester Zoo are so big and they have that following and it's amazing what they can do and what they've done for conservation, especially with their TV show and shouting about all the work we do. It was very grateful. <laughs> I think we're all very grateful for that post. Um, I know a lot of these were working together during that time to kind of club together and get through it really. It is nice when bigger places can shout a little bit more and that kind of helps those little places out as well very much so and that links perfectly to to the final question these big questions and that is do you think on a keeping level now you've just alluded to how zoos all combine so i think we know where this is going but do, do you think on a keeping level we're collaborating enough and or do we need to improve i think yes and no so when i started zookeeping i don't feel like people did collaborate as much but now they do that makes sense and um, there's definitely more out there social media definitely helps as facebook groups we can talk to each other and share knowledge and there's more workshops like every single year there's ones coming out so especially one came out was like aquatics for zookeepers so obviously you've got 
aquarists who predominantly work fish it's a very specialized industry however there are a lot of zoos where you might just have like three fish tanks in your zoo but you need to know how to look after them so that was a really cool workshop that i saw and at the time when they were talking about it i actually worked somewhere where i looked after some fish and i'm not an aquarist so i was doing the best i can but if i could have gone to that workshop it would have been a bit more helpful however i actually left the collection before i was due to attend so that's Gave my place to someone else. But even just like things like that, I think we're doing so much better, especially with recently that new organisation Keep has come out where people are able to, as zookeepers, apply and do a little bit of work experience at other zoos, um, which is really helpful because that's what we're here for. Like going back to the Andean bear, they're the only bear species that do not have a husbandry guideline. There is nothing written down, at least from what I know, that says this is how you should look after your animal, even though we're learning so much more about them. So... If we didn't all speak to each other, we wouldn't know how to look after them. But because we speak to each other, we do know how to look after them. So yeah, I think we're doing quite a lot, but there's always more that could be done. I think it's exactly that. It's just building on it and, and so on. And I think exactly right for the Andean bear, I, I was told when I was doing my own research that apparently the stud bookkeeper had all the information, but you had to speak to him or her um, regarding it. And that was it. So yeah, without speaking to each other, we this information is not passed on. So very, very well put. Now, we're going to head into the quick fire round. This part of the podcast is a little deceiving because the name on the tin says it should fly by. But as we're learning on this podcast episode, these questions seem to erupt as much as any other. So we'll see how we get on and plod our way through. The first question I've got for you then, and I feel like we might know where this is getting aimed. What is your favourite animal? The Andean bear. <laughs> um, I don't work with them at the moment, but I work with them for think in total almost four years i just love them i think they're fun they're a smaller species of bear they they just do fun stuff they just do bear stuff i don't know how to explain it apart from if you work with bears you'll know what i mean they're fun to enrich they love getting into things they're very cheeky very destructive in the best possible way like it keeps you on your toes and you're looking after them you're always trying to think of new things that might keep them busy for longer than it takes them to destroy it and everything like that and i think my first introduction to them Having worked with someone, well, with Lucy, who was so passionate about the animal, it kind of instilled that passion onto me. So yeah, I was very lucky to be able to work a little bit with the Andean bears at Chester. And Madidi, the cub that was born there, she ended up at Noah's Ark, where I used to work. And it was really lovely to work with her as she was growing up into a, a little young woman. So yeah, they're just a really fun species. I absolutely adore them. If you get a chance to work with them or even meet them, please do. They're brilliant. Not to discount any other bear species. I love them all, but Andean bears are my favorite yeah really well done and obviously it's, it's nice to hear about that networking once again and the passing of knowledge and passion it's uh yeah very infectious which is is great great stuff now number two then is what is your top tip for mental health and well-being take time for yourself if you need a break take a break if you need a day on your day off or you just sit in bed and do nothing you do it you just need to look after yourself really it's a demanding job. I find it particularly hard in winter when it is freezing cold. So I don't know how many listeners have been to Whipsnade, but it is Baltic up there in winter. It is horrendous, like beautiful, lovely, so cold. So my favourite thing to do on my day off is have a nice warm bath. <laughs> but yeah, definitely just look after yourself, really. Very well so, very much so. Okay, so the next one is really left field, and that is what is your favourite film? Do you know, I do really like Moana. Um, <laughs> if I'm having a bad day, I'll just put my runner on in the background. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> no, good choice. Good choice. Okay, we'll move on then. Now, the next one is, what is the best part of the industry? Every day is different, and I love that. And you get to build these relationships with the animals, not sat in an office all day. It's just different. It's just fun. 
you're always doing something different and you've always got a problem solving kind of you've always met with challenges and uh, I just enjoy like being challenged in that way really absolutely absolutely okay so the next one's going to take you absolutely anywhere in this world and that is what zoo globally would you like to visit and why the san diego zoo safari park just because everyone raves about it and i've never been and it sounds amazing and i want to go but also taronga open plains zoo because i've been to taronga but i did not make the journey into the desert to open plains two very good choices as you can imagine san diego is going to appear pretty much every episode i think it's uh it's a keeper's dream almost uh out there but taronga hasn't especially the plains hasn't come up that often so uh a, a very good choice to add to the list but uh yeah no very very good okay so the next one then is looking at yourself is there one trait one attribute inside yourself which has allowed you to become the person you are and get into the position you're in today i think i just don't give up <laughs> really i kind of change things where i need to and like when i was applying for jobs i've got a whole like folder on my computer which is full to the brim of just job applications and cvs and cover letters and yeah that <laughs> that's kind of how it is you apply for a million jobs and you may not even hear that once so just keep going <laughs> yeah determination is key okay so the next one then is something that i don't actually have an answer for who knows if I'll ever have one. And that is, if you weren't a zookeeper, what would you be? Um, I don't actually know, because that's all I've ever wanted to do. But I've always thought about going into like some sort of like research or kind of behaviour or ecology kind of way. Um, but yeah, hopefully I can keep zookeeping for a while yet. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Okay, so to reflect back a question from earlier on, is there a part of the industry you feel we still need to improve? Yeah, I think there are bits that need improving. Maybe old school keepers who've been it, been in it forever, um, which is brilliant. They've got loads of experience. However, not everyone has experience in managing people. Um, so as good as we are at managing animals and kind of making sure they're all right, I think there should be more training available. So if you end up in a senior position, you might get to do a, a course alongside alongside it that kind of teaches you how to manage people if it's not something you're confident at and um, i think that's something that kind of should be rolled out kind of everywhere really good answer okay so the next one it's going to dive a little bit more into your personal side and that is within the industry who is your idol um i've got two if that's okay touched them on earlier lucy edwards learned a lot from her very good person in the industry always up for a chat i work quite well with her she's just lovely i said she's very passionate and gets stuff done um, she doesn't beat around the bush. She tells you how it is. And I really kind of appreciate that. I needed that when I was learning. And another one is Doug Richardson, who is, I don't know if he's been mentioned before. I really look up to him. I know he's had some controversial opinions in the past, but he's always got a reason behind why he says things. And he makes you think. And uh, you can learn a lot from him. He's done a lot of stuff. And is you know, he's been in situations where you'd never want to be um, and come out of it on the other side. And, you know, that's just purely because he's got the experience and knowledge behind him. And yeah, I just think he's a great guy. I've spoken to him a few times, especially recently at the Bear Workshop. Yeah, he's got a lot to say. And obviously you were at the Bear Workshop and everyone who did a talk, he would ask a question to at the end that made you think. And, you know, it wasn't him being nasty. It was just, you know, what's the reasoning behind this? Um, and it gets you thinking and kind of answering what you wouldn't normally do. So, yeah, I like it. He's got a lot to say. Absolutely. Some really, really kind words there. And you're not wrong. Every time that a presentation finished, his hand would go up. And as the hand went up, everyone's eyes would go straight to Doug. So, yeah, definitely uh, a voice to be heard within a room. Definitely. 
Um, now we're on that last question. We're coming towards the end of this podcast episode. And that is, can you summarize, can you pull together this whole industry and give us only three words to describe it? Diverse, fun, and uh, busy yeah a very very nice way to sum up the uh the whole episode we are now at the end though so thank you so much Maisie for coming on hopefully you've had a good time myself and the listeners can not thank you enough um and it's been a real privilege to have you on thank you no worries well thank you and we'll hopefully get on again soon definitely see you later bye and that concludes this week's episode what an amazing guest and an amazing time we had Now, if you have enjoyed it, please do subscribe on Instagram, Facebook or our podcast channels to Zookeeping 101. I can't express how thankful I am personally from a fellow zookeeper to have you along for this quite amazing journey, learning about everything zookeeper. Otherwise, please subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you very, very soon. Bye.